Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. You can just go to the iTunes store and type in Jazz Session. It'll pop right up. You can also go to thejazzsession.com, and in addition to a, an easy one-click link to subscribe in iTunes, you'll also find all of the previous shows. They're all free. Listen to them whenever you want. You can download the MP3s. So it's all right there for you at thejazzsession.com. I'm using thejazzsession.com a little more as a, a jazz blog now. So to make it easy for you to get right to the shows whenever you want to, you'll notice along the top of the site it says Show Archive. You'll also find a similar link on the left-hand side. You can click that, and you'll see a list of every episode. Also, every artist's name is on the left-hand side of thejazzsession.com, and if you click on the name of any artist, it'll take you right to the show in which they appear. So lots of easy ways to navigate around thejazzsession.com. Speaking of things that appear on the left-hand side, if you're uh, at the website, you'll see our cause of the month, and this month it is Musicians Village, which is a, a very worthy place in New Orleans attempting to create uh, a home for uh, some of the, the cultural icons uh, and journeyman musicians uh, who lost a lot after Hurricane Katrina and uh, Hurricane Rita. It's a project of the New Orleans Habitat for Humanity and uh, also the idea of folks like Harry Connick Jr. and Branford Marsalis, and I hope that you will click on the link and send them some money. Thanks a lot. We've got a lot of great people coming up on the show in the weeks ahead. Uh, McCoy Tyner, Jack DeJeanette, Marilyn Crispell, David Sanborn, uh, Henry Grimes. It's a it's an impressive list, if I do say so myself. And uh, the cool thing about it is, it's really fun for me too. I'm not one of those jaded guys, you know, who who doesn't dig talking to some of these uh, jazz legends. I I really enjoy it, and equally as much, I enjoy talking to the people that you may not have heard of before. My guest this week is Javon Jackson. He's played with everyone from uh, Art Blakey and Freddie Hubbard to Elvin Jones and McCoy Tyner. He's got a new record out in which he pays tribute to a lot of the people that he's uh, either played with or just loved his whole life. They're not all from the jazz world, and uh, the album is called Once Upon a Melody. It begins with a Wayne Shorter composition called One by One. Thank you. 
My guest is saxophonist and composer Javon Jackson. He's got a brand new record called Once Upon a Melody, released on Palmetto Records. And it's my pleasure to have Javon here to talk about the record. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. So uh, every track on this album was uh, specifically chosen for one reason or another, sometimes because they related to particular people, sometimes because they were just uh, melodies that you'd really wanted to play. Before we actually dig into the particular tracks on the record, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do a project like this, why this was the next direction that you went in? Right, well, uh, the last three uh, CDs that I'd done for Palmetto, the first three I, I actually had been more uh, maybe groove-oriented and, and uh, R&B, funky-based, if you will. And after those three, just kind of sat down with the record company. We kind of discussed uh, uh, the option of doing uh, something more acoustic, which goes back to some of the early recordings prior to, to, to my time with Palmetto. So sound like a good uh, suggestion and a good uh, decision that we made. And so that was kind of where that premise came from. And you've really got quite a band on this album to play this music with you. Will you tell us about who's on the record with you? Right. Uh, magnificent uh, pianist Eric Reed, who's had a, a magnificent career, and he's uh, really a top-tier pianist uh, playing today. Um, a young uh, bassist named Corcoran Holt, who's uh, really making a name from him for himself. Excuse me. Uh, I met him uh, when I was uh, doing some work with Curtis Fuller, and he was uh, the bassist. And that was the kind of beginning of my relationship with Corcoran. But I've been happy to have him uh, play uh, with me occasionally when he's uh, available. And Billy Drummond, magnificent uh, drummer, one of my favorite drummers in the world. I've known Billy for some time, and he made, uh, I think, four records with me during my time on Blue Note Records. So he and I have a substantial history together in relationship. So I was very uh, happy and, and uh, felt fortunate that he was available. How did you first meet Billy Drummond? I met Billy some years ago, um, trying to think exactly where, but um, I was working with Art Blakey at the time, and he might have been with Horace Silver, so it goes back a ways, but I've known him um, since that, that period in New York when uh, we had both basically just got here. And I've never interviewed Billy or, or met him, although I've seen him play a lot of times, but he always seems like a really positive spirit on the bandstand. I'm, I'm guessing it was that way in this session, too. Right. That's how he is in general. That's his whole uh, persona, real uh, personable and uh, uh, very passionate. You have a lot of musicians who are passionate, and also Billy is a, a real jazz fan. I don't know anybody who has a more diverse record collection uh, jazz fan or not. I mean, he's got just uh, unbelievable wealth of records. And when I meant volume and just thousands and thousands of, of CDs and records and cassettes and videos, he's, he's really uh, a fan as we all are, but I haven't seen anybody that parallels him. Now, you just mentioned uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, with whom you spent uh, quite a bit of time, and that actually leads in very nicely uh, to the first track on this record, which is a Wayne Shorter composition called One by One. Did you uh, become familiar with that when you were with the Messengers? Right. We played that on occasion uh, very uh, frequently. It was a period in, in Art Blakey's sets where we'd play what we called the hits um, from the past bands, whether it would be Monin or Long Came Betty, um, Blues March, One by One, and this song fit in uh, in that period, that part of the uh, uh, presentation where we play one of those kind of songs. And 
Um, ironically, all these years, um, I had never recorded anything um, associated with R. Blakey. I hadn't recorded anything from the R. Blakey uh, songbook. So that um, really felt natural for me to do something and, and obviously to pay tribute to uh, Art and what he did for my career and then obviously honoring Wayne because I'm uh, obviously he's a hero and he was a jazz messenger and he's someone who paved the way for me on many levels. Was it a conscious choice on your part not to go to the Blakey songbook in th- this far in your recording career, or did it just work out that way? Right. I don't think it was a conscious decision. It's just um, <clears throat> as I began to think about this um, selection of songs or, or compositions, I realized that I had never played anything from the Blakey songbook. I guess having played with played those things um, as frequently as we did, you're kind of trying to move on to different terrain. It was just, uh, I guess, uh, oversight. <laughs> Maybe you could call it that. How did you approach, uh, in general, not just with One by One, but with many of these tunes, how did you approach arranging them? Uh, many of them have such, you know, classic, I mean, I'm thinking of things like the In Crowd, for example. I mean, that's, people think of one arrangement of that tune, and, and it's a classic. Ditto for One by One. What was your approach to uh, the kind of small group sound that you were going for on this record and, and to making these songs your own? Well, what I always try to do is to allow the music to um, take on the character of the musicians that are uh, performing. So I allow them to be themselves and try to maybe tailor the music around the musicians that we're playing. Or when I got these collections of songs in my head, I thought about these musicians. So I always think about uh, the music and the musicians and how they work together. So... Um, song like uh, Inner Glimpse, as we'll speak about later, I, I just think of uh, being a McCoy tune, I think of McCoy and Tyler piece, excuse me. Uh, I think of Eric Reed because of his uh, knowledge and understanding of the music of McCoy Tyner. So it kind of goes from that perspective. There are uh, a couple of tracks on here that are kind of more traditional standards, what people would think of as standards, and one of them is the second track on the album, which is uh, a Matt Dennis composition called Will You Still Be Mine. Is that one that's uh, just always appealed to you? 
Absolutely. Sonny Rollins recorded it on uh Freedom Freedom Jazz Freedom Suite. The Freedom Suite, excuse me. That's right. That happens to be on there and so I was always a fan of that. I uh, used to perform it also with Freddie Hubbard uh on a nightly basis. So I got a chance to watch Freddie um perform this uh piece of music. So that's where my love of the song came from and watching these um uh, and other folks that I I've, can't really mention right now have recorded as well, but it's just a it's a great standard. So I was happy to uh, be able to um, try to present something, but a little different. I wanted to do it more in a, of a in a Latin vein, uh, more of a loose uh, kind of feel, and and kind of allow the band members to kind of um, take their own risks with it. And so that's kind of where. The version came from more, uh, uh, I hate to say floaty, but just more more open and more spacey. Try to create uh, maybe a different um, sound as opposed to trying to perform it the way um, Sonny Rollins did it because his version was so unbelievable and obviously uh, having played it with Freddie. You know, it's interesting because uh, you're a, a relatively young guy in in life terms, but in terms of the jazz world, you've really spent a lot of time on stage with some really, really heavy hitters. I mean, the, the Messengers, uh, Freddie you just mentioned, I know you've spent time playing with Elvin Jones, who's also recorded with you. Um, it seems like you were able pretty early in your career to, to jump right into some of these pretty marquee settings. Is that right? Right. I was very fortunate. If you look at the history of a lot of musicians, it kind of works like that for us. You're uh, this young individual, and you go from one setting to another setting to another setting. You take a person, example, Kenny Garrett, who was with the Messengers when I was with the Messengers. Well, he went on to work with Freddie Hubbard. He worked with Miles. He worked with Woody Shaw. He had uh, some extensive uh, time with Mel Lewis and Thad Jones uh, Ensemble. He was also part of the uh, Mercer Ellington. So... You find that during the course of this career, this tutelage that we gain, we work with these different individuals. And uh, even a person like Miles Davis, he, he really went from, say, Charlie Parker, but before that he was with Billy Eckstein, he was with these different bands. Although he became a leader quicker than most, he still had an association with Lester Young and these different people. So I think it's kind of, um, sometimes it's understated how much musicians go through this, this stage of being with different being with different uh, leaders for a period of time to develop oneself. And I think it's something that unfortunately doesn't uh, occur as much today um, in terms of bands being available to younger musicians, and I think it's really good because you can 
um, develop uh, many aspects of the, of the music business, whether it's the, the actual playing aspect, the business aspect, the presentation aspect, uh, um, sometimes how to present yourself uh, regarding the clothing, all that kind of stuff happens from being around these other musicians who can, older musicians or experienced musicians who can impart some of their wisdom. And um, for me, I'm very happy that I came through it that way. You were just mentioning uh, Sonny Rollins and his version of Will You Still Be Mine, and uh, actually the, the disc moves on to a Sonny Rollins composition uh, called Paradox. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that one? Right. I actually recorded this piece of music trio with Peter Washington and Billy Drummond. So just wanted to kind of revisit the song. I just love it so much. I love Sonny. And uh, that's on a CD called Work Time that he did some years ago. And uh, having lost Max Roach recently, it was my chance to kind of dedicate something to Sonny again. And Max, who's on the original recording with Sonny. So it was my idea of kind of paying tribute to both of them, but honoring Sonny, who's um, somebody I have so much respect for on all fronts. And he's just a dynamic man and artist. And so I'm just always uh, in awe of him. I was checking out uh, the website that Brett Primack runs for uh, Sonny Rollins, mm-hmm. and uh, just recently, when Sonny played his concert in the park, Brett interviewed a bunch of folks in f- before the concert and then put that together as kind of a, a video podcast. And there are people of every age. I mean, there's like high school kids, you know, up to people who saw Sonny when he was coming up, uh, who all are just you know, totally in love with the man and with the music. And it seems like there aren't that many guys in the jazz world anymore who command that kind of not just respect uh, and appreciation of the music, but also love on, on the part of the fans. He seems to be a special case. Right. Well, his, uh, again, his body of work, um, his um, sense of uh, longevity on a high level, and also... Um, the connections that you can see historically that he's had, whether it be with uh, Miles or with uh, Charlie Parker or John Coltrane or Bud Powell or Thelonious Monk and Art Blakey and on and on. And he, um, his collaborations with Coleman Hawkins and the list is staggering, the things that he's done. So he's that last um, conduit, if you will, to that period. And uh, you're right, he's... um, his music is timeless. Um, he still sounds like he's 25. He has the energy of a of a youngster. He still has uh, the humor, um, the emotion, the seriousness, the dedication of a musician who's in his 30s. And uh, so he just 
he leaves you breathless in terms of what he's been able to do for the music and and he's still trying to embellish on his legacy which is um is staggering in itself how difficult was it for you when you were developing as a saxophone player to step out from under the shadow of Sonny Rollins or John Coltrane or Stan Getz or Lester Young or any of the great tenor saxophonists who'd gone before. It seems like in every review, any newer saxophone player is always referred to as sounding like one of the greats who's gone before. And I wonder what kind of both pressure and expectation that puts on you or put on you when your career was starting to create your own Javon Jackson sound and approach. Well, we all go through... The, the period of Im- imitation, most of us, where we have to sound like somebody before we can assimilate that, and then we become innovators or try to uh, come up with something that's our own. But everybody's coming from somewhere. So at a certain point, you um, have to enjoy that aspect of going through someone to find yourself. And at a certain point, you just start to see things a certain way, and you start to understand them and say, okay, well, I see how this individual did it and how this individual did it. So now I'm going to try to do it my way because if you look at it from this perspective, no matter how much you try to sound like somebody, you can never sound like anybody anyway. You can have um, facets or certain, um, uh, maybe certain stylistic uh, ideas that you might be able to grasp, but you can never really sound like anybody because there's only one you, there's only one of that other person. So you just try to go through it, and as you become a little older, you become a little more confident to be okay with what you're doing. I think what happens is, for me, I play what I want to play, and say, well, man, it just doesn't sound as great as what those guys are doing. And you have to be willing to um, step on out there and try to uh, create whatever it is or or present whatever it is that's going to be you. I think what happens, again, playing with some of these musicians like they are Blakey's and uh, Elvin's and Freddie's and the association with Ron Carter, they challenge you to step inside of yourself and realize that that is you and that is fine because whatever that is, that makes you. And so that is that what makes you is, is the same that made John Coltrane be John Coltrane. You have to be willing to step out there and uh, make a mistake and allow that mistake um, to turn itself into what you're going to be as a as a uh, as an artist It seems like one way to to make your own thing is to write your own music, which uh, you do, and which is the next uh, track that we come to, which is called Mr. Jones, which is a composition of yours. Uh, Who's the Mr. Jones in the title? That would be Elvin Jones. That's what I thought. Yeah, it was uh, dedicated to Elvin, who uh, learned so much from uh, another dynamic artist and giant in his business, and um, being around him was very enlightening in that he was... um, so very much uh, full of humility and love and support for his fellow musicians and at the same time very very dedicated to the music going to higher levels all the time and I always appreciate him because he seemed to be so spontaneous and so in the moment and he always 
seemed to give everything that he had on the bandstand at all times. There was no, um, as we like to say, half-stepping. He, he wasn't that kind of guy. And so it was really an honor to, to watch him and to watch his pace. He never felt, I never felt like Elvin was in a rush. He always, his pace was, um, no matter what the song tempo, the style, or how intricate the, the vehicle we were playing were using as a vehicle of music, he always seemed to have a pace that he was um, completely uh, uh, at ease. I don't know how, how old you were when you recorded me and Mr. Jones for, for Crisscross, but it seems like it must have been uh, quite a thing to have Elvin Jones on the drums on your very first recording as a leader. Yeah, it was very special. It was um, something I still look at with a lot of um, humiliation about having Elvin there with me to support me. And again, that's what I uh, go back to him being there and saying, listen, what can I do to help you? Let's, it was, it was, believe me, it was just, you got the feeling that it just was any other musician, but it was Elvin Jones, but he gave you that support as if you were whatever you deemed to be, uh, a leader or what this individual Elvin would have to support. He would support you no matter who you were. And that was what I loved about him. He was just so consistent in his, his ability and willingness to support another musician. Elvin uh, played the drums on a, a pretty arresting version of uh, My One and Only Love, recorded with John Coltrane. And My One and Only Love is uh, the next track on Once Upon a Melody. Uh, is this uh, kind of like Will You Still Be Mine, just one of those tunes that, that really connects with you emotionally? Great standard. I heard it some years ago, actually. The first time I heard it done live, I heard George Coleman play it. And it was so beautiful. I was in college, I remember, and I heard George Coleman play it, and I said, wow, I really want to learn that. And then, uh, obviously, I was familiar with it with um, Coltrane when he plays it with Johnny Hartman. So, of course, you, you love that version, and you hear uh, Train and, and the singing quality uh, through the melody. So the melody is just uh, for the saxophone in that particular key that we're playing, and it just lends itself really well, and it's, uh, again, a very, very uh, warm uh, vehicle for me. And so I just really um, enjoyed the opportunity to do it.
we come to another one of your compositions, which is called Mr. Taylor. And uh, to whom is this dedicated? Mr. Taylor is dedicated to a gentleman. Uh, this is Dr. Mike Taylor lives down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I met him some years ago, and he's just been a real uh, special individual. Big, big jazz fan, and um, I like to say he's my groupie. I've, he's come all the way to London to see me play. He's traveled to, uh, he's driven up from Atlanta up to to Cincinnati. He's flown up to New York. He's flown all these different uh, places to support me playing music. So he's just a real, real close friend, but he's got an incredible insight on life, and so I've learned a lot from him, and um, sometimes you get these kind of folks that aren't necessarily musicians that can convey some things to you that can help your musicianship <laughs> or help your music in a funny kind of way. It's kind of a parody, but it's uh, ironic that he can help me in ways that correlate themselves to music without having, without them really being a musical uh, support, if you will. Well, it seems, I mean, that makes some kind of sense, right? I mean, if your life is... Your life is more centered, or uh, you know, if you're happy in the other areas of your life, or you're finding some some resolution or some peace or whatever, it seems like that should come out through your horn as well. Yeah, or just sometimes when you get clear in one aspect of your life, it clears up other things, but also helps you to see different things on the musical front. So um, yeah, just a just a wonderful uh, person, just uh, a lot of uh, information and and a lot of. Uh, great books and great uh, conversation that's really helped me in, in a lot of ways. So I just wanted to dedicate something to him. Well, there's three more tracks on the album, and uh, the first of the final three is called The In Crowd, and uh, this is another one of those jazz classics, and it has a, an arrangement that everyone knows uh, from the, the Ramsey Lewis days. I wonder how you, uh, how you chose this tune. This song, um, I always say song, I like to say piece of music or composition, but anyway, uh, this piece of music was uh, something that I literally heard as a boy. Um, my parents... Um, played music all the time in the house as I was growing up. Um, Saturday morning was always the day when every my brother and myself we got up and we did our chores. We swept the floors, we mopped, you know, swept the rugs, mopped the floors, um, washed the clothes and ironed and whatever we had to do, wash cars. But music would be playing in the home all the time. So we heard uh, that piece of music. I, m- I must have heard it that record, I, I know it back and forward, uh, that particular CD, I mean recording uh, with uh, <laughs> the in crowd and music like that, uh, Ahmed Live at the Persian, Ahmed Jamal, I heard this music all the time as a little boy, so I can sing the entire song to you just by the fact that it played in the house so much. 
a big uh, lover of the piano, so I heard a lot of Ahmed Jamal and Randy Lewis and Earl Garner and so have you and so forth and so on. So those were some of the things that I heard, but I heard this track over and over. So um just felt like, you know, I would love to, to, to uh present something like this and uh I've loved it all my life, so why not try to uh try to uh, present it and also with Eric and uh his uh gospel uh, prowess and background, I said, Wow, he'd be a nice uh perfect person to help me with that delivery. The next track on the record is McCoy Tyner's Inner Glimpse, and you've actually played this tune with its composer, right? Right. Playing with Freddie Hubbard it was really special because different musicians would come by and sit in, whether it be George Benson or Stanley Turrentine would come by. And um, on this particular occasion, I'm just speaking about, um, McCoy Turner came by to sit in, and um, he came up and he called this song called Inner Glimpse, which I had never even heard of it. Played it and it was great. And then um, maybe a year later, I got a hold of a record he did called Enlightenment, which is um, uh, a recording that uh, showcases this piece of music when he recorded it live in Montreal. And it's an unbelievable. It's a 20 star recording <laughs> of McCoy Time. <laughs> uh, believe me, 20 stars. And there's actually a video now, a video of this performance live. This track, Inner Glimpse, that, that he did, that was this recording, it's just off the charts. I mean, it's unbelievable. But it was the band he had with Junie Booth and um, Azar Lawrence and uh, um, Alphonse Muzon. And it's just, like I say, it's 20 stars. So uh, just happy to kind of, and he recorded it later again with uh, Freddie Hubbard and Al Foster um, on a record called, I think, called Quartets, something in the 80s. But anyway, I love McCoy so much, and I had been playing it on the road uh, recently before we had recorded, and just really wanted to go in and, and record that. And then uh, the record closes up with uh, a tune of much more recent vintage uh, by someone who's not part of the jazz world, but who I think is a, a really phenomenal musician. Will you talk about uh, who wrote the last song and uh, what it is? Right. I played uh, in Woodstock last year. I did a, I've been doing some touring um, with my group with Les McCann as a special guest, and we played up in Woodstock. I was a wonderful promoter there and uh, had a great time and... Uh, 
Her name is Greer Smith, but she enjoyed concert, and so we kept in touch by email. And um, I happened to be out of town. She sent me an email and said, there's a piece of music I think that would sound perfect for you, that you would do a good job with it. Um, you should you know, look up this song, Like a Star. And I was traveling, and to be honest, for, I don't know, two or three weeks, four weeks, I didn't really respond to the email and just read it i didn't and so she emailed me again did you ever get a chance to look at this song and i said no i i said could you email me the song again she emailed me the song like a star so who's the artist and she said corinne bailey ray and i just had not heard of this individual at all um so i went out of town again and came back and actually went to uh JNR Music bought the music and put the track on, and I was knocked out. I said, wow, this is really nice. Her voice and the delivery and uh, folkish, but um, had some other qualities to it, too, and contemporary, but I just liked her, her singing style. Then I started uh, hearing that she was on a record with Herbie Hancock. <laughs> then, after we recorded, of course, she they that, that record won a Grammy, so, I mean... But I wasn't familiar with her at all at that time, so sorry to say. But now, big fan of her uh, her music. Now, I listen to her CD quite often. So um, when I heard it, I did say, "Well, I would like to um, I'll perform that." And that again, that was one where we just came in and just let everybody do what they do. I kind of gave everybody an idea where I wanted it to be. I wanted to try to keep it somewhat contemporary. I didn't want it to lock it up any particular way, time wise. I mean, when I mean time, like period, um, like years, I wanted it to be today. And so I thought that that came out pretty good. That was saxophonist Javon Jackson from his new recording, Once Upon a Melody. It's on Palmetto Records. 
You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show for free in iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store and type in Jazz Session. The Jazz Session also has a Facebook group. You can just search for us in Facebook and uh, join if you'd like, and we'll post shows up there and you know some photos of artists and that kind of thing. Don't forget our cause of the month, Musicians Village in New Orleans. Just click on the link at thejazzsession.com. You can also find all of our past shows there. I don't know who we are. You can find all of my past shows there. And you'll also find links to my articles at All About Jazz and some of the writing that I've done for uh, the Island Packet newspaper down on Hilton Head Island. And who knows, maybe even other things that I don't even remember right at the moment. The theme music for this show was done by the Respect Sextet. They're online at respectsextet.com. Dave Vrabel designed all of the graphics for the jazz session, and you helped make the show possible. We've got well over 100,000 downloads these days, and I'm very, very excited about the direction the show's going in, and it's all solely because of your interest in the show. That's what uh, allows me to book the guests, and uh, that's what will keep the jazz session coming to you for as long as you would like it to come to you. So... With that in mind, I hope you will return next week and listen to another conversation about jazz right here on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.